I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal. Thank you for listening to the From My Angle podcast. I'm excited to be launching the second season of From My Angle. We have a slate of exciting guests lined up to join us twice a month this school year. Together, we will ponder educational innovation, the challenges associated with leading change, and the powerful impact the program here at Parish is having on our present students and has had in the lives of our alumni. To kick off this second season, I sought someone whose perspective on the school experience for young people in college preparatory programs deserves exposure. For over two decades, clinical psychologist Dr. David Gleason has focused his practice, research, and writing on the topic of adolescence and what he coins fiercely competitive schools. His book, At What Cost, is one we discuss at length in this podcast. I commend it to anyone who, like we do at Parish, believes the independent school model needs reimagining and reinvention. You can also hear more from Dr. Gleason by searching his TED Talks. I'm certain you will find this discussion compelling, indeed a thought-provoking way to start the second season from my angle. Good. Well, thanks for uh, th- thanks for joining the uh, first episode of the second season of From My Angle podcast. I'm uh, thrilled to have been able to fit my way into that busy schedule of yours and uh, share Likewise. a few minutes, uh, talking about your book at what cost and and really just the state of uh, uh, competitive competitive schools and what you're what you're seeing there. So you know, I yeah. thought we'd interview you being from Massachusetts in the New in New England area, allow you just a second to. Uh, introduce your your background uh, as a clinical psychologist and uh, you know your work uh, in uh, really this kind of focused area with young people in competitive schools. So tell us a little bit about your professional background and really what brought you to this uh, to this really interesting niche. It happened kind of a long time ago, um, and um, thank you for sending me these kind of questions in advance. But the gist oh, is well, um, the my very first job out of college back in 1982 was as a high school teacher. Uh, ah. I taught high school psychology, um, and I was very interested in that. And I did that for five years uh, while I got my master's degree in counseling children and adolescents. Um, and then, so I was naturally interested in just working with adolescents mostly. Um, mm-hmm. Then around the same time, got married, and my wife and I moved into a boarding school also up here in New England. She was a math teacher. She still is a math teacher in that very same school. Oh, wow. Um, but um, I became fascinated with the adolescent world in which I was literally living. Mm-hmm. Um, and what struck me right away was um, I recognized watching their various, their orientation programs every year. I watched um, these young children go through this transition to boarding school at the, in the same kind of way that, you know, that I remembered um, having gone through the transition from high school to college. And it just struck me that these kids were so much younger and so much more vulnerable in that, in that phase of their lives. And I think transitions are themselves interesting periods of time where, you know, people are in the middle of uh, leaving one kind of comfort zone and establish themselves in some new way in a new environment. And that causes a kind of natural anxiety anyway. Right. Anyway, I wrote my, my dissertation ultimately on, um, something uh, called learned helplessness. Learned, 
and the adjustment to boarding school. Mm -hmm. So I worked with three different boarding schools and, and followed 105 kids through their transition to school. Uh, and the idea of this was I was just curious about how they all felt as they moved through this transition. Without going into all of those details, that became a, a fascinating first endeavor. But that dissertation also led to my um, getting my first job as a director of um, counseling and health services at St. Paul's School up in Concord, New Hampshire. Itself yes. a 100% full residential boarding school. And for a bunch of years, I was the director of counseling and was very involved there. And that's where I started to first experience a kind of, you know, I went there as a newly minted psychologist, eager to use the skills I had trained in to be helpful to kids as much as possible. Mm -hmm. What I didn't expect was that the shadow side of all the success that those schools, that school and others like it, were experiencing was that, you know, a lot of kids were anxious and depressed. And, you know, in all of those schools, we had suicidal attempts and we had pretty serious stuff going on. And I, I slowly became just fascinated and, and intrigued and quite concerned with the fact that um, all that glitters wasn't gold there. And there was a lot of unrest and a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression and a lot of other things. And it wasn't just St. Paul's, that was just my immediate experience. Absolutely. It was everywhere. Um, that's right. So that's what led me into this field and I've been doing it for 25 years. Yeah. Um, this book came 20 years later um, mm -hmm. when I, you know, after seeing these patterns and these trends uh, emerge uh, over time. Yeah, so you worked with a, uh, with a friend, John Buxton of mine up at, uh, at St. Paul's, uh, mm -hmm. who was there for many years before going off to, uh, to, to, head Culver. to, to Culver Academy in, in Indiana. But his son, uh, JB, who also went to St. Paul's, is uh, a good friend of mine from my years in, in North Carolina. So know, know that area and that, uh, and that school um, uh, well. And, and I think really that's uh, about that, pi that pivot point right there around uh, as you started that work around 2000, when I think, uh, you know, all of a sudden folks like Denise Pope and others began to shine a bright light. Uh, I'm, the son, I'm the son of an independent school educator, myself, independent school uh, uh, educated, graduated in the mid 80s. And, and I remember uh, a distinctly different culture and tenor to the school experience. And when I speak about it here in our own parent community, uh, I usually cite as the uh, you, you know, this sort of pu first push of the boulder off the mountain, uh, the U.S. News and World Report list of 1983, which then with the accelerance of the ease of online applications and the, uh, and the, and the uh, many of the phenomena that you trace in the book, by about 2000 uh, had really changed the game. And, and uh, of course, Denise Pope is coming here tomorrow. And I mentioned that to you, I know you do work with her, but her book, uh, you know, her book when it first came out, doing school was 2001. So she, like you, just on that uh, on that cusp of a wave of recognizing uh, that really what's happening in our schools is having unintended uh, right. deleterious, deleterious effects on, you, you know, on, on students. So I'm writing and speaking uh, this year as I do each year uh, around a theme, and and though our themes have consistently in parish over my 10 years here been about. Uh, new models of independent school education. This year, I'm, I'm focusing on this notion of perspective and how uh, we, the, the perspective each of us brings to our interactions with one another or the institutions that we work with or for students to the school experience they have here. So yeah, I thought you might, uh, by way of, of really bringing this right down to the student level, 
uh, tell, tell us, uh, you know, what a, what a voice sounds like to you of a student that you've had experience with, uh, you know, whose, whose, whose perspective on school has become one uh, of, of uh, drudgery, anxiety, stress, uh, however you might describe it. Yeah. Well, you know, what's tr what comes to my mind right away when you ask the question is um, not just one voice, but practically every voice that I've spoken with um, for the last uh, 20 years or so. You know, um, a book that I've recently read, and you might know about it, Jean Twenge's book called iGen. Um, yes. You know, she's a, a generational researcher, and she's written plenty about the millennials and other generations before that. But in this iGen book, she refers to children born between 1995 and 2012 as being at the, and this is her quote directly, um, at the forefront of the most dangerous mental health crisis in many decades. Right. I completely agree with her. Right. Um, but what that means is that every kid that we're now talking about, these are kids who are, they're all of the adolescents in our schools. They're even college students in our, in our colleges. They're young children. They have been born into a culture that is ultra competitive from the minute they've been conceived. Let me just tell you this one very quick kind of anecdote that kind of helps to, um, to capture that. I have three other psychologists who work with me in my practice. Mm -hmm. And one of them, she and her husband had their first baby last summer. So their son is now one year old. But in February of 2017, before their son was to be born in July, um, Rachel called this very reputable daycare facility in her hometown of Groton, Massachusetts. And, right. um, and wondered if there might be a vacancy for her soon to be born baby in October or November of 2017. And yeah. the response she had was, I'm sorry, Mrs. Leary, but the, uh, we're fully enrolled for October of 2017. In fact, Mrs. Leary, we're fully enrolled uh, for, the, for October of 2018 as well, which meant right. that at, in February of 2017, this daycare center was fully enrolled with, with babies who hadn't been conceived yet, um, which gives you a sense of the, the kind of stress or anxiety or worry that would be hoped to be soon to be parents have about if they are lucky enough to conceive a child, they want him or her to be in the best daycare center so that they can go to the best preschool, the best elementary school, so they can go on this linear path to the best colleges. Yep. As if that kind of linear path actually exists. It doesn't. But what right. it does is highlight the anxiety of the culture into which every one of these children has been born. So yes. having said that, the voices of the kids that I see, all they know is this pressured environment uh, to follow a particularly uh, linear path of taking advanced courses as much as they can, of filling their lives with all kinds of activities well beyond their developmental capacities. Um, they are pressured from the moment they begin school, I think. And, and yep. we see it, I see it mostly in their high school years, but it starts way before that. And it continues long after that, uh, well into the college years as well. Yeah, where Gene's brilliant too is I think, um, if if that if that uh, fire pit was already uh, somewhat raging in the early two thousands, uh, technology, which is her area of expertise as well, right. has been 
throwing lighter fluid onto that charcoal pit. That's so this, exactly right. You know, this, as you well know, as a clinical psychiatrist, this, this really comparative culture that the kids today live in only exacerbates and accelerates what was already uh, stressful conditions. Frank right. Rooney, I refer to often as well, because he refers to them as, as fragile thoroughbreds. And I, and I use that uh, a metaphor of his uh, quite frequently in this community too, you know, this, uh, uh, these, these sheened uh, coats of adolescence today, uh, you, you know, polished by AP courses and community service events of all measure and type. And, uh, and yet the, the first sign, uh, like your boarding school experiences, the first sign when they're off on their own at college of, of setback uh, or failure, you know, those, those, uh, those weak ankles of the fragile thoroughbred break. And in your book, uh, At What Cost, which I commend uh, to our parents, you know, you cited a 2015 um, Atlantic article by uh, Alexandra Sola, and she, you know, talks about yeah. nearly half or 49% of all students report feeling a great deal of stress, uh, daily anxiety. Julie Lifecott Hames, who we had here in April on campus, has uh, excellent research on this. William Deserowitz uh, has spoken uh, and written about it, uh, you know, one in seven. Uh, college uh, freshmen experiencing anxiety, uh, even the National Association of Independent Schools, an organization that you also know well, uh, you know, has incredible statistics on the uh, percentage of students that are feeling stressed or very stressed in our school. So very, very I think it's well established that this is the case. I think the question is, you know, these narrow perspectives that you that you speak of, this this narrow perspective on what is success, the, the, the narrow perspective on the pathway to a life of meaning and purpose. I mean, the ultimate question is like, how did we get here, right? And so what's created it? And you uh, speak about in your, in your book about this phenomenon of the double bind, you know, and, and I think, you know, at root, at foundation, this explains it. Like why schools like the one you worked in and are familiar with, the ones I've worked with uh, in my lifetime uh, have, have, have found themselves stuck why Parrish is working so hard through our Reimagine initiative to unstuck ourselves, you know, as a, uh, as a, as a school. So talk to us a little bit about this double bind, this notion that we as parents and educators say we want to educate self, uh, safe and healthy kids, this notion of the whole child, but we're actually committed to values that contradict that very intention. That's exactly right. So at the same time that I start, my, my initial intention writing this book, Dave, was... Um, after 20 years or so of being a, a psychologist in elite independent schools, but also working with plenty of high profile public school districts as well. Um, I had, I had watched what I consider to be three major trends. When I first started working in schools back in the mid nineties, after I was a licensed psychologist, eating right. disorders was kind of the big thing. Um, right. And I remembered like, wow, that was the most, the most scary way to have a kind of significant, uh, anxiety or depressive condition, it manifests in significant eating problems, both for boys and girls. Mm -hmm. um, and then over time, uh, that trend began to shift into uh, a cutting uh, and self-injury. And suddenly that became, it was, a, it was the same energy that was previously manifest with eating disorders, but I started to see a trend where so many kids were presenting with self-injury uh, and, and cutting. And I, I'm, when I first encountered it, I thought these were suicidal behaviors. They're not. They're just attempts to relieve pressure um, yeah. and, and so on. So, but then in, in the, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, I, I'd say, I, I realized that there was yet another and even scarier phenomenon happening, which was 
the frequency with which kids were presenting with suicidal ideation and suicidal behavior. Mm -hmm. And, and it just became um, really scary. I remember thinking, oh no, not another kid coming in saying, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to kill myself. And mm -hmm. what struck me was the frequency with which this occurred made me think that teenagers were kind of uh, pushing it. They were kind of saying indirectly with their own behavior, um, how far do we have to push this until you adults get it to realize that this is much harder than you think it is. And mm -hmm. you don't seem to get it. So we're going to push this and push this until you understand. So right. my entire focus of writing this book initially was simply to kind of collectively empathize with this group of adolescents, to, to be an adult voice, to represent them to other adults, to say, how far do they have to push this? Let's get adults' attention. Mm -hmm. But at the same time that I was doing that, I was also doing some training in the immunity to change paradigm. The authors of this, Bob Keegan particularly, uh, Bob was a professor of mine in graduate school, so I've known him for a long, long time, since 1989. Mm -hmm. And I've I found him to be an incredibly valuable resource in my own education. And when, when he wrote, he and Lisa wrote The Immunity to Change, of course, I read everything that they, they had written, and I was struck by it. And all of a sudden, I was training to become a facilitator of their workshop. Mm -hmm. So at the same time that I was starting to write this book with literally just with stories of kids I had seen over time to exaggerate, you know, to represent their voices and to represent their experiences of anxiety and depression and so on. I was also training to do this immunity to change. And then it, suddenly it hit me that that paradigm became, would be a perfect diagnostic tool by which I could get more information about the adult's role in, in kids' lives right now. Right. So, um, so I went home that afternoon, I had this like aha moment, literally I was on my bike and I had this moment like, wow, this, this could be powerful. So I went home and I, I asked my wife to participate in this. My first interview on this was with oh, my right. wife who was well into schools already. And right. I led her through the immunity to change interview that I had in mind. And she went right to everywhere I thought she would go. Yep. And then I asked a couple of other schools to be pilot studies with me. And I led the administrations of those schools through the exact same interview, which is now my chapter two. Um, and I then, I was already on the circuit of, of speaking internationally with international school conferences around Europe and Asia and, um, and, just, I, and, and lots of places that I was going. And everywhere I went, I gave the exact same interview, which is my chapter two. And as mm -hmm. you can see in chapter two, everybody, everybody, everybody said and saw and reported the same thing. And right. so you would say to him, like, look, you all want what's best for kids. You, you want them to have a safe, healthy, holistic experience. Why won't you change? And on page... Yeah. You list them some here, and we would probably hear them in, at Parrish or any other great school across the country. Well, we need to maintain our reputation as an elite school. We need to protect our brand. We need to be, not be perceived as intellectually soft. Your wife may have answered some of the questions exactly this way. Identically. Right? identically. Parents, please. We need to justify our high tuitions. 
Uh, we need to emphasize uh, achievement over effort. They have to get jobs. It's competitive out there in the in, in the world today. And so, you know, these are the things that are create that double bind, right? Like, That's we exactly know right. The kids, but our perspective on change really ratchets down and becomes negative because we're afraid of what we're going to lose. And Robert yeah. Evans, as you know, another yeah. great theorist uh, on on change management, especially in independent schools, talks about uh, change engendering loss and grief, yeah. Yeah. right? A the confidence, uh, a uh, raising conflict. And so these are very natural phenomena associated with change. But I think the point is, uh, it is why 20 years after your work has started and almost 20 years after Denise Pope wrote her book, Doing School, uh, we're still essentially struggling with the same fundamental question of right. rolling, out, rolling out a model that right. is, that is uh, not, not particularly healthy for kids. That's exactly and, right. And not being courageous enough, by the way, to start to deconstruct some of the apparatus of schools that might lessen some of those pressure points. That's right. That's right. It's primarily an, an anxiety-based model because I really think that, as I try to point out, when adults say that they are deeply committed to trying to educate their students in healthy and safe and balanced ways, they mean it. That's why they went into education. They like working with kids and they feel compelled to be, in a sense, sponsors of, of healthy adolescent development in very good schools and they mean it. However, when they get there, they're also working with parents who are themselves anxious. Um, and these days, parents are themselves graduates, like you and I are, of selective colleges where we want the same things for our own children. That's right. And we recognize that, you know, my wife and I have three kids and they've all finished college. So we're on the other side of this, but we remember well our own anxieties about where will they go to school and what schools will they get into and how will they do. And I've lived this experience as I'm not just writing about it. I've lived it. I understand it. But it's an anxiety-based model that, that basically says, you know, we, the, the basis of this model is we protect ourselves from what terrifies us. And what terrifies us is the idea that in this current economy and in the current culture, if our kids don't go to selective colleges, they won't have healthy, balanced, good futures of their own. And we can't stand that so no, so we put ourselves in situations we are where we are committing ourselves to over scheduling them and to overworking them and to overwhelming them and and we're we're contributing to the problem um my big issue when i go to schools is to say you know when kids are struggling with anxiety and depression and eating disorders and cutting behaviors and even suicidal behaviors we do what we've always done, which is, has always been a good thing to do. We send them to people like me. We send them mm -hmm. to psychologists and psychiatrists and mental health providers of all kinds. And we say, get the help that you need. We feel so bad about your situation. But we rarely, if ever, say, what are we doing in our yep. schools that has kids so anxious and depressed and suicidal in the first place. We don't, right. look, we don't look in the mirror. When we do, we see what we're doing, but we're afraid to change because if we do change, we fear that our whole reputation, our whole brand will go, we'll lose our jobs, and we will be failures. And suddenly, there's the bind we're in. And who pays for it? Kids. Kids, kids, kids. And this is yeah. not... This is not a kid's story. This is an adult story. Adults can, 
can figure this out. They have to figure this out. It's part of why I mentioned also, you can see I can kind of get going about this, but um, I mentioned Margaret Mead's wonderful quote uh, in the book by saying, you know, Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of committed, thoughtful citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Um, I'm convinced that our independent international set of schools, we are a minority of schools relative to the whole world, but we are a thoughtful, committed, decent group of people who can put our minds together and change the way we do things. And we can be, I think, the, the thoughtful, committed group of people who can change the educational world in the best interest of respecting the developing adolescent brain, basically. Yeah, I was, and I was fortunate to, to come to Parrish in 2009. They'd only graduated three high school classes after adding a middle and upper school. And, you know, with now 11, you know, we have 1,100 students here, but uh, we have a psychology in this community that uh, I think... Um, it, we, we are in a converted uh, ExxonMobil International Research Station here designed by IMPay. We are a non-traditional facility and we positioned ourselves very much um, at, a, at really a quite opportune time, frankly, in, yes. in the communication education uh, as a place that, uh, you know, to, to use the, to use the, uh, the, the phrase that uh, a hero of mine, Michael Crow at Arizona State, uh, talks about when he talks about the new American university you know, really to think about what does the new independent school model look like? Because not only is it bad for kids, we would argue, but our mission calls us to prepare our students for the complex global society. And yes. I don't think the analog apparatus of school, frankly, even does a really good job of that. Adult curated, uh, adult curated curriculum, uh, basically pound and ground, memorize and regurgitate, right? The, the, this, this way school has worked fundamentally. We can argue about whether it's, you know, good or bad for kids or, you know, necessary, tough love, hard schooling experiences make for competitive kids in today's world. Like we can argue about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think it's inarguable that uh, the world uh, of tomorrow, our, our, our youngest kids here are three or three and four years old. They're graduated from here in 2034, right? You know, that world is going to demand a, a set of skills and competencies that we believe uh, need to be thought about uh, deeply and will not be the same that if those have been rewarded over the past uh, generation, uh, generation right. and a half. In your and book, quite frankly, given the fact that technology is changing and everything's changing so rapidly, those three and four-year-olds in your school now, we have no idea what the world is actually going to look like in 2034 when they graduate. We just have no idea. But we're, we're putting them through this mill as if we do. And, and you know, it, I'm a bit of a one trick pony on this, but I, I think we're hurting them in the process because we're not paying attention. And this is where I anchor things in my book with my chapter five, which is to say, yeah. you know, the human brain isn't going to change just because we think it should. Um, we yeah. have to respect it and we have to pay attention to it. Yeah, it, it's been developing the way it develops for millennia. And, That's right. and our job is to get in sync with that, not try to override it. Yeah, so let's talk, you, you talk, uh, and again, for those that maybe think this is too theoretical or, or what have you, like in chapter five, you get into brain science, and I, and I would commend to any parent who's e either in the process of or about to raise a young adolescent uh, in that, in that uh, proximal age, basically nine to 15, that uh, just reading chapter five of your book alone is, is, is well worth it, but you talk about essentially five phenomena of adolescent brain development that are occurring yeah. at that and two yeah. in particular that you, you talk about, this notion that the brain is developing from front to back, yeah. essentially 
that the primitive limbic uh, brain of ours that uh, was the fight or flight uh, response mechanism that, that allowed us to, to, to per persevere and evolve, uh, it develops first. And then the front frontal lobe where we are able to, uh, you know, uh, weigh the pros and cons of the decision we, we make and, and, and set goals for ourselves, this frontal executive function in the frontal lobe develops last. That's the one piece that you mentioned. And then you talk about the power of the environment to shape the brain. So that first phenomenon is essentially means that the anxious brain, the limbic brain, the fight or flight brain is predominantly adolescent. They are already a stressed out, anxious entity. Like they're just that way because that's how they're developing. Then when you take the second factor, the notion that the environment really shapes the adolescent, if you double down, I call it your double down effect, right? If, if you double down by creating an achievement oriented, outcome fixated, uh, competitively driven um, uh, academic experience, therein lies the rationale for why you're having so many children walk into your three uh, partners there with suicidal ideation, right? So exactly. unpack a little bit of that from your, from your, uh, your, your medical expertise. Well, the, the piece that I, I, I talk about frequently in my presentations is that when children reach puberty um, universally, um, there are three major changes to what growth and development mean. The first one is, as you uh, point out, is this limbic system turns on in a whole new way. Um, that's not just to make life difficult for their parents and for teachers. This is an, evo this is an evolutionarily... A necessary developmental uh, structure that's now come online, now empowered by whole new hormonal forces, right. uh, triggered by puberty itself. Um, and quite frankly, we would never leave home if we didn't have this limbic structure to get us to take all kinds of risks out of our comfort zones of the lives we've been living up until this very point. Um, so the, the limbic structure is designed specifically to encourage us to take risks, to be emotionally more attuned, and ultimately to take risks that put us out into the world and have our own lives. It's a developmentally necessary structure. That said, it's, a, it's, a, it's an all or none principle. It's not like the limbic structure just starts and slowly comes online. It comes online full force right away, and kids are now subject to an intense kind of emotional experience of life that is in somewhat brand new relative yeah. to their previous years of childhood. Um, yeah. So at the same time that that's turning on full force, the limbic, the, the prefrontal cortex begins to, to uh, develop in a whole new way, but we now know because of these neuroimaging strategies, um, that it doesn't fully develop until the late 20s or the early 30s. So you have this internal conflict between a limbic structure that's driving full force, you know, what it wants and what it needs and what risks it wants to be taking against a kind of executive that is um, junior varsity, you know, an, a, yeah. an executive that isn't quite prepared yet to manage the emotional intensity of the limbic structure beneath it. So this sets kids up for conflict all the time. Um, so the other thing that's happening is that by the time puberty begins, um, the brain in the, in the young pubescent child has reached its full adult size. It's reached its full volume. But now from now on, growth means something completely different. And that growth is the development of white matter or neural pathways or, and, and that's where 
we call it white matter because it's um, a substance called myelin that wraps around the neuron that is a white fatty tissue that facilitates the, the, the speed and the conductivity of this electrochemical process uh, called neurotransmission. And basically, this goes back to a, a quote by Donald Hebb back in 1949. Um, and he's the guy who coined the phrase neurons that, that fire together, wire together. So um, the structure here is that now, um, you know what, you can kind of think of it this way, but the only way that the brain uh, wires together and fires together is in response to its environment in which it exists. Of course, internal thoughts and, be and feelings can trigger uh, neural pathway development, but so do we're always, always, always reacting to the world in which we live. So, you know, it stands to reason to me that if kids are currently in this environment, which is high stress all the time, then the neurons that are firing fairly frequently have to do with stress and anxiety and defense against those kinds of things, not necessarily about history or French or English or, or, or whatever they're supposed to be learning in school. Of course, those things are, are developing too, but we're also setting them up to, to, I think we're setting kids up for anxiety disorders because if they're constantly in this anxious state in their environment, then what's firing in their brain are these defensive mechanisms um, that get hardwired. Uh, and, yep. and suddenly they develop these intense kinds of experiences of anxiety. And it's coming from a purely biochemical uh, reality that their brains are living in an environment which is itself, I think, too toxic for their still developing brains. So there are those three big big issues to me that define growth and development for the adolescent brain. And, you know, I, I say frequently, we now know because of neuroimaging, we know too much not to be doing the right thing uh, by, by scaling back the amount of pressure that we impose on them. Having said that, this is the part of the bind we're in. We're afraid to do this because we're afraid of what it might mean for us and for our schools. What has to become primary is our commitment to respecting the adolescent developmental process. It's not going to change just because we think it should. Yeah, we can't overwrite uh, millennia of, 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 uh, of, neuro, of neuroscience. We just know it better now because of MRIs, and, and that's, uh, that's really within the last, the, last, the last decade. So we have this sort of uh, narrowing perspective on, on what success is uh, relative to our students and our parents. Uh, as, as parents, we look at our kids, it's mm -hmm. our, 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 our pathway to, to life of meaning and purpose, uh, our perspective on that seems to have really narrowed. Schools have narrowed down what they deem to be successful to really outputs, right? Measurables, uh, metrics, college placement lists, standardized test right. scores, AP percentages. Uh, we've, talked about, we've talked about why this exists uh, within, our, within our schools. There's a, a, fear, of, a fear of change uh, because uh, the perspective is that if we do that, we're gonna lose market share or parent uh, glorification or, or uh, board support. Uh, and we've also talked about really a narrow understanding of the adolescent brain, which is also informing and sort of uh, explaining why we found ourselves here. And earlier in the conversation, I mean, I think we've covered it sufficiently. It, underlying all of this is this perspective that we're all we're, we're change averse, we're change fearful, 
And I think, you know, coming out of this podcast, you, you know, what I hope our listeners who at this point are primarily uh, parish parents will understand uh, is that while the change that we have really since 2009 been exposing this community to, but with greater uh, uh, fervency and, and really kind of whole institution commitment since 2014, while it is, uh, I'm sure, uncomfortable, we know it is, and, and, and anxiety provoking, uh, that we are doing it with uh, the deepest care and the deepest thought uh, and the deepest awareness to uh, really what we think both science and the complex global society of tomorrow should be demanding good schools to do. And so we're really, we've invited them on the journey with us to That's question right. to ask to, to ask and learn more. Uh, and I, I go back to your quote on 120, uh, page 125 of your book. You mentioned this earlier. Like this is the notion of like, why do we expect our kids to be pliable? Why is it that we just tell them to, to toughen up or get over it? Or this is just the way it is. You just got to grind out junior year. This is just how junior year is. It's the hard year. You just got to, you got to make it through. Like, why is it that the burden is always placed on the, on the student to change? Why collectively as adults, board members, educators, parents, can we not expose ourselves to this, some discomfort and, uh, and poke at the apparatus of school, how we grade, how right. we articulate curriculum, how we right. use time, right. uh, how we standardize the experience for kids instead of letting some kids move flexibly based on that because we know what's going to create mental wellness for kids, voice and choice and autonomy, the ability to control what they learn and how they express their knowledge, the fact that they get into that Goldilocks zone where they're, where they're not studying something that's too hard for them or too easy, right? So that, that, pre, that precludes everybody moving at the same time like we know some of the factors that are going to create mental wealth and wellness so why does adults like why don't we why don't we expect why don't we explore some of that together right right exactly you know? right the problem is um that in my book and i th there's a a recent development that i'm actually quite excited about um when I, the immunity to change paradigm that i that is the focal point of my research here um doesn't have a way to prescribe, you know, here's, I, I can't, just because you've read the book, Dave, or that people in your faculty have read this book, I can't, as the author of this book, prescribe what changes Paris school needs to make. Absolutely. I can't Absolutely. do it. The, I, I have some ideas about things that you should be thinking about that are developmentally in sync with teenagers' developmental process, but the changes have to be yours. That my work might generate a kind of or or, or uh, create a motivation with parish school to to be to do this work but it's ultimately your work to do in making Absolutely. changes at your schools so yes. early on when i was finishing this book i hadn't even written what's now my chapter 10 um because i said i can't prescribe because i can't prescribe changes um, right but everywhere i go everywhere i go someone says uh, Dr. Gleason, so now what do we do? Yeah, you like know, you're not, I, yeah, like you're yeah. Now, you, now you should have the education answer, right? To go yeah. behind all your, yeah, your clinical and I, experience. And I say some version of, well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you some of the things that I think you can be thinking about, but you know, what, what do you imagine I would be saying? So I try to turn it back to them first and they go to good places. But the gist is that many, many schools, even though they have uh, a genuine desire to make these kinds of changes, they're either A, afraid to begin, or B, 
not sure of where to begin and they're not sure exactly how to do this. Um, so I have recently partnered legally with um, a, a national, it's called NSRF, National School Reform Faculty. And they're the originators of what's called critical friends groups. Yep. Um, and they stand in direct contrast to um, the way we typically have done professional development. This book is ultimately about professional development for faculty um, mm -hmm. and for schools and for parents. Yes. Um, so, you know, when we go to professional development workshops, um, uh, for example, I'm speaking at NAIS in, in February. In, oh, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. Yeah. In, in um, February of 19. Yeah. So, so that's a perfect example of this. You know, hundreds and hundreds of teachers from very good schools, wonderful people, are going to come away from their own schools, go to NAIS, listen to some interesting speakers and say, oh, that's interesting. And right. then they'll go back to their schools and go back to the way they do things all the time. Um, that's not really what professional development and growth is. But critical friends groups are about in school groups of people who work together for a minimum of two hours each month on school sanctioned time. And they right. present dilemmas to each other. They work together. They work together for years as groups of 12 to 15 faculty members each. And they grow together. They trust each other together. They, they change their minds together. They develop together. Yep. And, and to me, there's no better way than to encourage professional growth and development than by having real adults engage real problems in real time over time and come to their own creative solutions. Yeah, that's an, that's an exciting partnership and, and congratulations on that. And of course, others like the Mastery Transcript Consortium that are now, uh, you know, with over 200 schools, public and private parish is a partner school there and, and engaged and uh, others are really having strong conversations now. Uh, you know, uh, are we seeing a tipping point? I don't know. I, I go back to your, your initial observation, which is uh, really where I sit as a, as a particular school leader with great gratitude for the community of Parish Episcopal in which I sit which is that effectively this, is a, this has to be an organic, culturally attuned effort yeah. to attack this issue. And we are just optimally positioned at Parish to kind of be the Google or Amazon of schools, especially in a hyper-competitive Dallas market of, of great independent schools because of our history. Yes. And that is the thing. You know, it's hard for St. Paul's with a couple hundred years of history to all of a sudden start pulling the, uh, pulling the wires out and reconnecting them in a different circuit. Like that is, that is a fundamentally challenging change initiative. Very, uh, very, very, some, very. You know, some schools like, our, like ours uh, are optimally positioned if leadership is organized and committed, board is patient, uh, parent community uh, um, pr provides some trust and verify, you know, they, they come and they ask and, and they check in and, and, but they, and they're engaged, but they, uh, they trust an administration to move in that direction. Uh, and again, it's, you know, we're, we're way, we're way into it. It, it is a slow evolutionary process. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a switch. It, uh, you know, a dial, it, it's a dial. You just got to keep trying each year to, to iterate it in different directions. And I would say that you do have some excellent advice in here for parents on meditative practices, on breaking big projects into small projects, to uh, small pieces to, to promote executive function um, movement, the importance of sleep, because again, not just the school environment is seeped in anxiety and, uh, and, um, and pressure for kids, but the home environment is too. So parents right. need to take stock at the types of conversations that they're having in their homes 
with their kids. And if it's a constant recitation of uh, due dates and what was the last test grade and the checking of the portal, you know, that limbic, uh, that limbic dominated brain of your young adolescent is on is, is panicked. Is, is just getting doubled down on the anxiety. So parents, as you listen to this today, uh, I hope you uh, cast not just your eyes to whether the school is getting creative and problem solving in, around, this, uh, around this topic, but really the conversations that you're having, uh, that you're having in your home. So again, and Dr. Ultimately, and ultimately it's about having the school, you know, just using your school particularly, using the parish faculty and the parish parents to collaborate because you know, uh, one of the lines that I quote is from one of my very close colleagues here in Boston, um, who says, when all the key adults uh, in a child's life are on the same page, then mm -hmm. the child can't help but learn and grow in the direction of the adult's coordinated communication. It's, wow. one thing to have, it's one thing to have the faculty on board and trying to make developmentally empathic changes. But if the parents aren't also doing this, then the kid is in the middle of a of a conflict between key adults in his or her life. There has, yeah. to, be, there has to be collaboration uh, among all of the adults in the child's life, in the adolescent's life, not just some of them. Yeah, that's a phenomenal charge uh, for us all to take into the new school year. And again, I, I would commend, as I enter my 10th year here at Parish, I would commend this community for by and large, uh, really walking in, in lockstep and a, and a commitment to that. I've never had a board of trustees come in and, and, and ask me what are percentages of kids getting to the uh, most selective barons or, or uh, U.S. News and Report college list is. Uh, we rarely have uh, a, a, a conversation here as a community of adults uh, that's, that's fixated on um, measurable outcomes. They're important, but they don't predominate. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I hope our community listens hard to that uh, excellent charge of yours to work really in a coordinated lockstep with curiosity and ambition and hope yes. of a safer and better model for our kids. Yes. Uh, and, and that, uh, you know, we're all in, we're all in the business, as you said earlier, uh, we got into this work to, uh, to produce young people uh, who parish believes you're going to go out and impact the world for good. And they can't go out and do that if they're, if they're broken, you know, right. tomorrow, tomorrow's leaders, uh, you, you know, have to be, um, have to be whole and have to be, and have to be well, and so it's, uh, I think, just vitally important that the school experience that we provide them with is vibrant and enriching and passion-inducing and engaging, not diminishing of all of those things. And so, and, and there's also a little bit of a selfish, a selfish thing that we might as adults keep in mind. But the, the kids we're educating for tomorrow to lead tomorrow's world will ultimately be taking care of us. Or, <laughs> right. or, may, or maybe they won't be. Maybe they'll say, you know what, let them fend for themselves like they did to us when we were yeah. in school. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's hope not as both you and I get, uh, get yeah. dragged by, yeah. by the day. So it's been a pleasure. I commend uh, At What Cost, the book, to our parents. You can also uh, see Dr. Gleason on TED Talks by just Googling, uh, just Googling him. He's got some TED Talks that are essentially very summative of what we've talked about today. But uh, excellent resources as well. Dr. Gleason, thanks for uh, kicking off the uh, From My Angle podcast for season it's, two. It's been my great pleasure, Dave. Great to meet you, and I hope we stay in touch. We'll look forward to seeing you at uh, NIS in February, if not before. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please rate the podcast and share it with those in your network. 
And be with us next time when I'm joined by Chris Gruber, the Vice President for Enrollment and Financial Aid at Davidson College in Davidson, North Carolina. As the college admission season gains steam this fall, Mr. Gruber and I will reflect on how the college application process has changed in the last 20 years, and he will share his advice for families navigating the often anxiety-provoking experience of college applications and admissions. Until next time, thank you for joining me from my angle.